last talk that I've given was on on effort, part one. And you will probably expect that uh, today I'm going to give part two. This is not the case, sorry. But uh, rather, the topic for today will be an unusual one. So somewhat out of the ordinary. Now, the title of Fatna the talk is um, Ethical Conduct, so Sila, and the Natural World. When hearing this title, you might think, what does this, for goodness sake, have to do with our meditation practice? So Ethical Conduct and the Natural World, we'll see. Now, you will remember from the very beginning of our retreat, the very first talk, the opening talk, and back then part of the opening talk was on the three refuges and virtue. So a few basic things about virtue have been said already back then, and so you have, I suppose, taken uh, uh, what was said uh, to heart, and certainly uh, you are uh, yeah, then very much uh, trying uh, to uh, live in an ethical, uh, in an ethical manner. Now, this is certainly well and certainly good. Now, back then. We had to you know, observe, or we had time constraints, and certainly thus it was not possible to go into some of the details connected with virtue. And today we will take a closer look at one very important aspect in connection with certain virtue. Now, during this retreat, certainly we are uh, observing uh, the eight precepts, and the first one out of uh, these eight precepts is which one? You've just recited it. And the meaning of what we've recited in Pani is Yes, I undertake the training rule to refrain from taking life. Now, most of us will probably when they think of this certain particular um, training rule, think of <coughs> refraining from taking life in particular with regard certainly to our fellow human beings. So we do not, obviously we don't kill them, we don't torment them, <laughs> we don't harass them, and things like this. However, there is more involved. When we look at the Pali term Pana as part of Pana Dipada, then 
Prana is your breathing thing. So anything that is breathing, any creature that is breathing, which Shatnavin involves certainly not only us human beings as breathing things or breathing creatures, but there are so many other creatures that are also breathing. And so we, we vow, you know, we undertake the training rule you know, not to you know, take you know, the life of breathing things, be they big in size or small in size. Now, one practical application of you know, this during the retreat, certainly here is, and you may have noticed, gradually as, as it is getting warmer, we have new visitors, namely in the form of flies. flies. There you go. And certain part, yeah, are there any mosquitoes up here? Yes. There are. Yes. In the forest. In the forest. Ah. So, when Typically, a fly lands on the tip of our nose and then moves around. This will go along with the most unpleasant itching sensations. And the natural reaction would be to swat it. There you go. To get rid of it by swatting it. But, please do remember the first preset. Please do remember that a fly is one of those breathing things. The same thing goes for uh, the mosquitoes. So even if a mosquito lands on our arm and is happily sucking our blood, uh, yet we do not take care of the matter by swatting it by moving it, moving it on to a different existence. Now, there's still much, much more involved when it comes to this first precept, as you will see in a moment. Allow me to quote from a book written about a modern topic. And so just a second. The title of Fatna, this particular chapter here, is The Sixth Great Extinction. And I'm quoting. The editors are John Stanley, David Loy, and Guillaume Dorje. Major extinction events in Earth history occurred 440 million years ago, 365, 245, and 208 million years ago. Then, the last of the dinosaurs vanished 65 million years ago. Probably you know, when a giant meteorite crashed onto the planet, ending the era of reptiles and beginning the era of mammals. So, this certainly was the 
fifth great biological extinction of geological history. Now, a sixth spasm has begun, this one a result of human activity. Although not ushered in by cosmic violence, it is potentially as hellish as the earlier cataclysms. If left unabated, it could be the primary cause of extinction of a quarter of the species of plants and animals on the land by mid-century. The United Nations Environment Program, UNEP, identifies as endangered one in four mammalian species, one in eight bird species, one in three amphibian species, and 70% of plant species. The global species extinction rate now exceeds the global species birth rate by a factor of 100, soon to be 1,000. Global warming is being accompanied by loss of habitat to deforestation, agriculture and urbanization. Together, these factors could drive half of all species on Earth to extinction by 2100, which would constitute an Anthropocene mass extinction event. From the Buddhist point of view, this is unnecessary destruction of our fellow species. No, sorry, from Buddhist point of view, this unnecessary destruction of our fellow species is an unthinkable loss. And the Dalai Lama stated in this regard, we are facing the most massive wave of extinction in 65 million years. This fact is profoundly frightening. It must open our minds to the immense proportions of the crisis we face. So, just imagine, we are part, by the way we are living, of an event that could lead to an extinction of half of the Earth's species by 2100. Now, does this have to do with the first precept or not? Have you ever thought of it in that way? You have. Jim has. But most people probably not. So, the first precept is not certain only about certain refraining from taking a human life, but it's also you know, refraining you know, from um, you know, taking the life of other you know, creatures, and certainly in particular you know, from refraining you know, to contribute to the extinction of entire species. Now, if we think of plant life 
as one faculty life, and this is not necessarily mm, uh, ascribed to by the Buddha, but uh, mm, the prevalent uh, uh, way of uh, thought on the Indian uh, subcontinent, then um, plants uh, do uh, possess very simple uh, life, one faculty, certain life, and certainly so our present way of living contributes also to the extinction of a great number of plant species. Now, what we shall be looking at during this out-of-the-ordinary discourse this evening is at certain aspects certain that are related to climate change. First, some global indicators for climate change, followed by maybe some more local ones. So the question there will be, what indicators of climate change have you seen in your community, in the area where you live, be this here in New Mexico or elsewhere in the U.S. or in Canada? And then we shall go on to briefly touch on a few possible general solutions and certainly then discuss the Buddhist response to climate change and Buddhist teachings that are relevant to climate change. Now, just to mention uh, a few major global um, developments owing mostly to an ever-increasing amount of greenhouse gases and certainly this term uh, covers uh, carbon dioxide, covers uh, methane, also covers vapor, you know, you know, water vapor, and certain other gases. Owing to you know, those uh, greenhouse certain gases, you know, there is certain a likelihood you know, that the global average temperature will go up or down. Will go up. And um, this certain uh, then might have all sorts of uh, repercussions. And uh, one of uh, those is certain uh, that certain uh, we are experiencing mm, mm, well mm, a melting, for instance of the melting, a thawing away of great portions, great areas of the Arctic, the Arctic ice field. Now, this will have or has 
an additional implication when mass massive uh, areas of Arctic Khatna ice you know, you know, melt away, then what happens? It accelerates climate warming, and how is this? Well, by exposing the, the surface of the water, you, uh, uh, the uh, sunlight is absorbed more. And, uh, there you go. So, ordinary ocean water, deep blue ocean water, greatly absorbs sunlight, whereas if that area would still be covered by Arctic ice, and the ice is white in color, and white color reflects sun rays, yet then you know, the temperature would not drop that much. So it's this melting of Arctic ice you know, that then exposes additional areas of uh, um, ocean, and certainly the ocean yeah, then uh, absorbs yeah, additional yeah, sun yeah, rays, and that leads to a warming up of uh, yeah, the ocean, and uh, yeah, that then in turn uh, yeah, contributes uh, yeah, to um, a, a warming of uh, the global yeah, temperature. Now, this in turn then may have and the scientists are saying will have a very serious impact on the so-called GIS, the so-called Greenland Ice uh, uh, Shield. No, an ice sheet. And certainly the Greenland Ice Sheet is supposed to you know, be 2,000 kilometers long, 1,000 kilometers wide, and I think 2 kilometers deep. So, with the warming of the ocean water, and with the just uh, you know, the you know, general warming of uh, you know, the global climate, that uh, ice of the Greenland ice Sutna sheet will you know, steadily melt away. And the you know, result of this could be what? The ocean levels will, or the ocean level will swell, and this in turn swell by if the global temperature increases by two degrees Celsius centigrade, then scientists are saying that this may lead to a rising of the ocean level by at least one, or if not two meters, then what will happen to our coastal cities, such as New York? They will be? They'll be flooded. So great portions of uh, those certain coastal cities will be uh, flooded. And not just the coastal cities, but certain entire coastal areas not only in North America, but also in many other parts of the world, especially in Asia, where a number of 
uh, coastal cities Satna are located. Yangon in Burma would be one, Bangkok would be another, Dhaka in Bangladesh would be yet another, Calcutta would be yet another, and so on and so forth. So this Satna then, an increase of the global temperature would have a devastating impact on global on coastal cities, coastal areas, and certainly could lead to much loss of human life as well as certain destruction of certain property. Now. Other common or whereby now well documented consequences of global warming and be it just by two degrees certainly centigrade are increasing or increasing frequency of droughts. And not only this, namely further that desertification, namely the expansion of deserts, will then increase. And certainly so areas that so far have been very fertile now turn into deserts. So just theoretically speaking, it could well be that one day the southern parts of Italy that are still relatively fertile, one day will look like the Sahara. Maybe I'm exaggerating a bit. And certainly that may have tremendous implications for the rural or agrarian populations. Now, scientists are saying that if global temperature increases, it certainly will lead to a number, or it will lead to the exceeding of certain tipping points, not just one single one, but several of those, and certainly with this our climate will be um, totally out of whack. Now, a further indicator for global climate change is that the frequency of extreme nat- nature or natural events or natural uh, catastrophes, disasters such as droughts and f- you know, flooding, and uh, you know, then uh, fl- yeah, those certain uh, and fires that certain uh, those extreme events have uh, increased greatly. Namely, since the 1950s, they are said to have quadrupled. And apparently, in 2012, Australia witnessed a year of 
records when it came to natural disasters. They had, um, they had the greatest. You know, they had you know, the hottest days you know, ever. They had the greatest numbers of forest fires, the greatest numbers of and severest you know, floods, and uh, and also you know, droughts. And that finally did it and brought about a change of mind in the Australian government and now at least you know, the government is acknowledging you know, the existence of climate change and uh, you know, the results of it in the form of extreme natural events. Now, another major area where climate certain change is, or the impact of climate change can be observed, another arena in which climate change can be very nicely observed, now and and also in the future is Southeast Asia. Now we have the so-called Himalaya Hindu Kush, which is referred to as the third Arctic or the third ice pole, the third pole, Arctic pole. And this is uh, this expression is used because of its mass of uh, glaciers, glaciers along uh, the Himalayan range and uh, the Hindu Kush. Now, the increase of uh, global uh, temperature is having devastating impacts on uh, that. Uh, Himalayan uh, range or Himalayan Hindu Kush uh, region. Scientists over uh, the years have uh, noticed that glaciers are melting rapidly and that some, excuse me, entire glaciers have disappeared and so-called glacial lakes have formed because of those uh, retreating uh, glaciers. And this, in turn, whenever uh, uh, with an increased melting of glaciers, obviously there is more runoff in the rivers, namely because of this increased melt water. This may then lead as just a possible, one possible scenario to flooding in the various river basins like the Ganges Satna River Basin, Indus Satna River Basin and Satna Zone. Brahmaputra near River Basin. Now, scientists are predicting that 
in about 30 to 40 years from now, most of the glaciers will be gone or will be so reduced that there's not much left in terms of meltwater. So there's not much left in you know, you know, meltwater feeding those major rivers in South A Southeast Asia. Now, rivers tend to be um, tend to be what? River basins tend to be. There you go. Life-sustaining for human you know, beings and other species. Because you know, wherever there's water, with the water, you know, the soil can be irrigated and crops can be planted and you know, agriculture can take place. Now, scientists are saying that with an, an major decrease in glacial runoff or melt uh, meltwater, those uh, big uh, rivers in Southeast Asia will or might turn into just uh, small creeks. And uh, with this, the population that lives in you know, those river you know, basins might certainly face a dire, a dire, you know, or dire consequences. And the ECMON, you know, the International Center for you know, Integrated Mountain you know, Development in Kathmandu, and it's an, in, in a regional you know, organization you know, which studies the Himalayan Hindu Kush region is saying that this will have an impact on about on a population of about 1.3 billion people. So 1.3 billion people will be affected by climate by climate change by an increase of global temperature and melting of those glaciers. So the glaciers in the Himalayas in the Hindu Kush region perform a very important role, which previously most people did not realize. But now, as part of global warming, this is this becomes more and more obvious. Now, these are some of the major. Mm -hmm. indicators of threatening climate change as uh, um, have been uh, described by you know, many you know, scientists uh, by you know, and uh, now would you would you want to add anything is there anyone have any point that I forgot Deborah And uh, Lake Mead will then supply water for whom? Lake Mead supplies water for most of Arizona and a 
large part of Southern California. Oh, and does it also provide water to Los Angeles? Yes, some. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Also, um, the Boulder Dam, uh-huh. there's predicting by 2020 that there's a 50% chance that its intake will be below or above the water level, and the Hoover Dam will no longer be able to produce electricity, which supplies electricity for all of all, all of Nevada and a large part of California. Wow. Okay. This is in seven years. That's only seven years from now. Now, just briefly, a few more indicators from your own area. Indicators that you have noticed. Yes, um, Sumida. Fellow Canadians, or the Canadians here can help me with the actual numbers, but in Canada, at least in British Columbia, there's this pine beetle. Uh-huh. And usually its natural life cycle is short because it... Um, well, it just dies in the winter because it's so cold. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't been able to. Uh, it's been surviving the winters because it's been warming up, and, and it just eats the forest. Like ah. it's been completely yeah, wiped out. Wow, fifty percent. And uh, yeah, then, uh, Kathy and Michael, in your area, what about the junipers and the pinions? Well, where we live, which is. West of west of Taos, um, the well, the, most of the junipers died from from pin, you know from the beetles mm-hmm. and the drought. The, most of the pinos died, you know, in the early 2000s. And now the junipers are dying, and the, we're noticing that there's you know far fewer insects, and that um, there's no spite. That we're seeing very few spiders. Um, Any other indicators? Yes, yeah, Venerable Damadena. My friends in El Rito, which is not so far from here, maybe an hour, they say the bears have come down out of Carson Forest, and now they're roaming in that settled area looking for food and water because it's so extremely dry right now. Oh. Uh, uh. That one, and then the number of forest fires here in the area. Uh, no, New Mexico. I don't know if there's more in this year than there have been in the For some years now, it's quite common here because it's mm. quieter for mm. centuries. Mm. There's quite a few right now. Now, Oh, climate change, maybe, well, no, that has been mentioned. So you know, climate change is uh, not only uh, affecting you know, glaciers, Arctic ice, and uh, you know, things uh, like this, but uh, and fire, causing fires, etc., but uh, global um, warming also has a major impact on uh, wildlife in whatever form it certainly comes. And certainly this mm, has been uh, already uh, mentioned. 
in Nepal. Yeah, there's you know, also you know, indicators certain you know, for you know, this is certain you know, type of foot you know, bird that used to you know, live at a certain altitude now no longer lives there because it's become too warm for it and so it moves certain you know, higher up and so in the Yosemite uh, National Park there's an animal you know, Mm, um, yeah, a mammal, no, an animal, I don't know exactly what kind of an animal this is, but uh, um, called pika, and certainly it is an animal that certainly lives in the higher ranges of the mountains, and as it is uh, getting warmer, it's getting too warm for that pika, and the pika has no more or nowhere to go. It cannot go beyond the peak of the mountains. And so, so severe you know, consequences um, are what we're experiencing already, and more you know, will be probably uh, coming up. Now, until not too long ago, a scientist were of the opinion that there's a you know, distinction you know, should be made you know, between climate change you know, issues and uh, um, atmospheric you know, pollution. But in the meantime, this particular scientific view has changed, and uh, now you know, they're saying that uh, atmosphere, pollution of the atmosphere uh, also contributes uh, to global warming. Now, in this regard, the United Nations Environment Program of the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, are, you know, um, are calculated you know, the following. Namely, they you know, say in the absence of these air pollution mitigation measures, there will be globally 2.5 million deaths per year related to air pollution. The cumulative forecast for air pollution related deaths for the period you know, from 2005 to 2030, so that's a 25 you know, year period, is uh, uh, or stands at 62.5 million deaths. The World Health Organization comes up with a slightly, or proposes as a slightly different figure. It says not 2.5 million annual deaths, but 2 million. But it's still bad enough. Now, in the presence of air pollution mitigation measures, there will be globally 2.5 million lives saved every year. For Nepal, a small country of about 25, of a population of 25 million citizens, that's a figure then comes down to 25,000 deaths every year related to air pollution. Uh, problems. Now, in terms of certain general you know, solutions for 
climate, for the uh, warming of Fatna, the climate, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, which is uh, probably you know, the leading uh, body in uh, this certain field, has certainly proposed um, you know, three things three major uh, uh, thrusts of actions, namely research and certainly then, if I'm not mistaken, reduction of carbon emissions and, uh, and other greenhouse gases. And then as number three, preparedness for extreme climate conditions. Now, one could add another important you know, general approach, and certainly this is creating awareness for climate change issues worldwide. So, research should not means to mobilize, promote, and coordinate research for better understanding of climate and hydrological processes impact on biodiversity, ecosystem services, and associated you know, socioeconomic linkages. And please keep in mind that certain, the conditions in one region of the world and another region of the world are not the same. They can you know, differ dramatically. So mm, the impact of climate change in the Sahara might be quite different from you know, the impact of climate change, let's say, here in North America. And in Nepal or mm, on the uh, Nepal, that Hindu Kush, the Himalayan Hindu Kush area, again, it's a different story. Now, some rich countries have the funding for extensive climate change research, and poorer countries don't have. And so they then they have a different, maybe a different you know, situation going on for them, and they don't have the funds you know, to pay for the research, and certainly that then may have certain tremendous certain consequences. Now, what is being proposed now, more and more so, is a development of a standardized framework for assessing vulnerability to climate change impacts in one's region. The Indian government, for instance, is proposing this and doing this. And then also, in terms of government policy, evaluating different climate policy options, costs and benefits, what would work, what doesn't work, how expensive is it going to be, and uh, you know, what, are the what are going to be the benefits of it, and so on and so forth. And now, in terms of creating awareness, mm, there's much shutna that could be done, and shutna, this is an area where we as an individual, even if we're not a, a climate a scientist, could certainly become active. And starting maybe a citizen's campaign, if we feel that this topic is of, or has any relevance. 
Now, just Satya as Satya, an encouraging example, last year, if I'm not mistaken, last year, the British education minister decided to cut funding for middle schools and in particular for classes that are related to climate change. And one young girl, maybe 13, 14 years old, she must be pretty, pretty smart, she realized it is our generation that will have to deal with climate change in the future. And the government is cutting, cutting most of the climate change education from the curriculum. How are we, who will be affected in the future, how can we deal properly with what is coming ahead if, we don't, if we're not even taught in school? She started an online petition, and in no time, I think about 50,000 people signed. And across the educational board or across educational institutions, schools, and even universities, colleges, people signed on happily. And I think that minister had to give in. So that's just one possibility. In the realm of world heritage and protection of world heritage, UNESCO and its various organizations have started a program called World Heritage in Young Hands. So trying to motivate the young people, the young generation, to first of all appreciate world heritage, to then understand it, and certainly then, or first, sorry, to understand it and then to appreciate it, you know, to value it, and then as a next step, you know, to protect it. And along the same line, one might certainly think of something like climate change in young hands. Now, in terms of reduction of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse sudden gases, um, this is obviously an important step. Maybe one thing that has not been mentioned earlier on, you know, carbon dioxide is certainly caused by what? Motorized vehicles. Motorized vehicles? Industry. Industry. Yes, it's correct. And uh, n- n- then, n- n- what about coal power plants producing uh, electricity and then the, n- n- the process of doing this polluting the environment? So, uh, carbon n- coal n- producing n- sorry coal power plants in this country I have uh, n- read n- are n- considered the single most. Polluting sector in society, and or or in well in in this country, and now here comes some good news. Just maybe two days ago, President Obama 
they gave a policy, an important policy speech on his environment plan and believe it or not, the coal power plants will have to, or their carbon dioxide emissions will be limited. Limits will be put on them, whether they like it or not, it doesn't matter. And subsidies that for many years have been given to the coal, gas and oil industry industries, those government subsidies will also be scrapped. Which and it's the fossil fuels, the burning of fossil fuels that contribute to carbon dioxide emissions, and the carbon dioxide emissions end up in the atmosphere. And for how long does carbon dioxide live in the or stay in the atmosphere? Does anyone know in terms of years? Uh, that's, that's, you know, that might be the case. Carbon dioxide you know, has a tendency to stay in the uh, atmosphere or stratosphere, whatever it is, for over a hundred years. Now, um, the whole mess, so to speak, you know, started with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Started with James Watts and uh, the invention of the steam engine. And back then it was heralded as certainly you know great innovation, but now one hundred and fifty years later, we think we might think, my goodness, this man didn't you know, realize what certainly got humanity uh, into. And uh, yeah, so, over or within a period of a hundred, just one hundred fifty years, just think of it. It's a short period of time if you compare this to, you know, the you know, you know, life of uh, you know, planet uh, Earth. You know, so, in just one hundred and fifty you know, years, the so much carbon dioxide has gone into the atmosphere. It's billions of fatna tons that are now staying in the atmosphere, and it's just too much. So that apparently now that's critical value for carbon dioxide. It's a was just recently 400 measured at a station on, on Hawaii, I believe. Early on, it was uh, 385 pp uh, parts per billionth. No, parts pp. Yeah, I think it's that. And uh, prior to the in, in industrial uh, area. That value for carbon, you know, the uh, concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was somewhere around 280 or 285 ppb. So a huge increase. And if things continue like this, you know, then uh, uh, the climate will you know, just start behaving in. Um, well, unwanted ways, not so stable ways, might be a good way of putting it. Now, so 
reduction of carbon dioxide and other mm, greenhouse gases would be one valid approach. Then a switching to non-fossil fuel energies would be related to this. So switching to renewable energy such as wind power, solar power, and certainly then solar thermoelectric, solar photovoltaic power, tidal power, and so on and so forth. Different things are possible. And um, on an individual level, um, our houses could be you know, retrofitted, could be um, uh, uh, well modernized by making them more energy efficient, etc. Now, the government, you know, we might. And certain scientists are doing this now. We might even, since this is such a fundamental problem, this climate or global warming, we might as well take a closer look at how our economic system runs. And so on the way things are going now, is this certainly really a responsible way? Uh, laws on, on, on from a legal perspective uh, one could certainly try to bring about certain changes as well as certainly through government action and certainly hopefully now in the case of the American government something is happening hopefully these measures will be implemented now this is just a for general understanding and it may sound obviously to you or it might certainly sound a bit unrelated to an intensive retreat but gradually we're getting into the Buddhist teachings that are relevant in this context. Now the Buddha fortunately did give footnote teachings that are applicable to climate change and as certainly it turned out during a recent academic workshop workshop at the Institute for Sustainability uh, for Advanced Sustainability Studies uh, in uh, Potsdam, Germany, uh, you know, the Buddha actually has come up with quite a number of really relevant uh, teachings. Now, first of all, humanity's place in nature. What is our mm, place in nature? Mm, mm, uh, the, you know, the natural world. Allow me to quote Peter Harvey and his from his book The Introduction to Buddhist Ethics. He says, Given all that that has been said or explained so far in the early, in the earlier part of the chapter, it is clear that the Buddhist ideal for humanity's relationship with animals, plants, and the landscape is one of harmonious cooperation. 
Buddhism emphasizes or Buddhist teachings emphasize a disciplining and overcoming of the negative the negativities within the conditioned nature of the human heart. Now, does this concern us? Is this what we're doing here? Yes. Such an approach goes hand in hand with a friendly attitude to the environment. And this can be seen in D.T. Suzuki's talk, and D.T. Suzuki was a well-known Japanese Zen scholar. So in his talk of making a good friend of a climbed mountain rather than of conquering it. So the mountain standing for nature rather than conquering this mountain or nature, but then to relate to it as a good friend. So simply put, our role as humans is not to conquer and subjugate planet Earth, but rather to live in harmony with it and in cooperation. Now, do all uh, religious traditions say the same thing? So-so. Some yes, some no. So, mm, in certain religious uh, mm, teachings, there have appeared or has appeared this notion of stewardship. So, us humans you know, you know, uh, then being the stewards for nature and also conquering the wild. Now, in our relationship, and this is looking at things from a really, or at a really fundamental level, in our relationship to the environment, there's two fundamental things involved. Namely, our actions that certainly we engage in, and certain, and certainly then on top of this, the ethical qual or the yeah, the ethical quality of those actions, or the ethical quality that goes along with it, being either ethical or unethical. So. From the Buddha's point of view, it's not just doing things, but what also counts, what also has an impact on you know, the environment is you know, with the mental intention with, with, with which we do something. Now, this point will get suddenly clear in a moment. The Anguttara Nikaya, Volume 2, contains Discourse uh, known in Anguttara Nikaya 74 to 76 contains a discourse subject known as the Adamika Sutta. So, uh, on unrighteousness. And 
the discourse basically says if the king of a country, so the ruler of a country, is unrighteous, then the ministers will also be unrighteous. If the ministers are unrighteous, then the governors will equally be unrighteous. If the governors are unrighteous, then the townspeople will be unrighteous. And this then will have an impact on the environment. And then the stars, um, the stars will be off course and day and night will be off course. The winds will you know, become erratic in the way they blow, the directions and uh, the you know, wind strength. And then we, and, and then um, the crops will be affected and human be beings will be weak, short-lived, uh, people. And then, mm, in a very systematic manner, the Buddha goes on to state just the opposite case, namely, when the king or the ruler of a country is righteous, and righteous certainly here meaning living in accordance with the Dhamma, then the ministers will be righteous, the governors will be righteous, and all the way down to the level of the town's people. And certainly then nature will be in balance, climate will be in balance. Now, a similar uh, thing is uh, mentioned also uh, with regard uh, to uh, the rain. So when um, people are righteous, uh, then the rains will fall uh, in a regular uh, manner. If not, uh, the rains will uh, not be uh, reliable. Now, if you think of the Buddha's great passing away, which took place between two sal trees in Kushinara, then because of his great purity, it appears nature honored the Buddha by um, by trees, then trees certain that um, that trees that were out of season, they passed, um, they burst into a mass of unseasonal blossom, which fell on you know, you know, the Buddha in homage. So the purity or impurity of a human being and the actions that go along may have a significant impact on the environment, on the climate. Now this ethical quality of our actions, this is something that most people don't even consider. But the Buddha clearly does stress it. Now, when we look at 
the Buddha's Satna teachings, relevant Satna teachings, we find, you know, we find the first precept. Banadi Bada Virami Samadhiyami. And that precept saying not to you know, take life. Now, as a result of Fatna, this and a general um, attitude of non-violence, Awihimsa, in you know, the Pali scriptural language, uh, non-violence and non-injury, as a result of Fatna, this, we do not harm animals, be they you know, small or big. So this aspect of non-injury or not uh, harming then is based on two motives. The first one being compassion and the compassion for the suffering that certainly will be caused through harming and the second one being the law of karma or the law of kamma and vipaka namely cause and effect now we may think that our actions will have no, no results out and that there will be no consequences but this is not the case so if we do engage in an act of taking a life or injuring life be this human life or the life of you know, some breathing thing like a fly or a mosquito or an ant or whatever or a bird or you know, fish in, you know, uh, in the ocean and so on and uh, there will be consequences to this and so we'll fall back onto our head and we'll end up experiencing some unwholesome karmic results. Now, an event from the time of the Buddha nicely illustrates this respect for life, namely, on one occasion, the Buddha was passing by a group of children and the children were molesting a snake with a rod. And seeing this, the Buddha spoke to them and said, as is recorded in Dhammapada verse 131, whoever seeking one's own happiness harms with the rod pleasure-loving beings gets no happiness hereafter now this positive attitude towards animals and even helping them is certainly enshrined in which sutta mostly 
Hmm? The Metta Sutta, there you go. The Karaniya Metta Sutta. And where it says, whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are to be born, may all beings be happy. And please um, you know, do understand by beings are meant not only human beings, but any form of living beings, sentient beings. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so, let one cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let one's thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below, and across without any obstruction, without any hatred, without any enmity. Also related uh, here um, is a passage from the Patisambhida Magga, namely um, also Metta, which should, you, know, you are uh, chanting every morning before breakfast. And part of that is wishing may all beings, all breathing things, sabbepana, all beings, sabbesata, all living beings, buddha, sabbe buddha, may they be free from enmity and danger and so on and so forth. So do, please do realize that the the loving kindness you know, preached or, or you know, uh, spoken of by the Buddha is a universal type of you know, loving kindness extended not only just to our family and to our friends, but you know, to all human beings, to all living you know, or sentient you know, beings. So there's a tremendous amount of you know, res care and respect you know, that Satna then you know, follows Satna or speaks out of this for you know, life. Now, since we're already you know, advanced in time, one could certainly, one could say a few things about uh, Buddhist certain economic ethics, but you know, I'll you know, skip you know, that part. Now, other relevant you know, teachings in the context of climate change are non-action versus intervention, so anatta versus apayoga. Sometimes it's better not to get involved. So when it comes to climate engineering measures, big expensive programs that are you know, being you know, uh, imagined by you know, some you know, engineers, then it might be better not to get involved in you know, this. 
important not to get involved in, in let's say any kind of activity that harms certainly the environment now we further have satakatna sampajanya namely clear comprehension of benefit or purpose of an action so an action in particular with regard to the environment and here we could add not just benefit but also looking at the cost and benefit of uh, a planned action so whether some some action is benefit is going to be beneficial or not now, in connection with this, there's the Pali expression sapaya nasampajanya, which is clear comprehension of the suitability of a proposed action. So something may be beneficial, but mm, will it also be suitable? Only if, uh, let's say, a mitigation measure that is both beneficial and suitable would it be appropriate to go ahead mindfulness is certainly useful everywhere as the Buddha has stated so not only in our intensive meditation practice here during this retreat but also outside of retreat and in the years to come very much so with regard to environmental issues, climate change issues. And so if within you know, the next seven years you know, certain you know, reservoirs will be dry, you know, then I think it's high time you know, to be really mindful of how we consume uh, water and uh, how we deal with certain, uh, the nature or, or you know, the natural world that we are part of. Now, already in the late 1980s, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, realized uh, the implications of certain climate change and has spoken uh, about certain climate change on many occasions, if I'm not mistaken. And His Holiness the Client, the Dalai Lama, speaks of, in very clear terms, of a universal responsibility that we have with regard to this topic. A universal as well as an individual responsibility. So, this is not something that we can just set aside and say, okay, that, uh, it doesn't concern me, I'll just ignore it. It does concern each and every one of us. And if our way of living contributes you know, to the extinction of 50% of all species by 2100, you know, then it does um, concern us and our ethical conduct in particular the first precept now as another you know, way of you know, responding you know, to the climate change coming from a you know, Buddhist perspective would be a serious commitment you know, towards observing Mm, well, the eight precepts on retreat and the five precepts outside of retreat and uh, you know, to take 
the precepts really seriously and also to look at them from an environmental point of view or climate change point of view. Now, to bring about major changes in the physical world usually requires changes where? In the mind changes in consciousness and in order to bring about these certain changes in consciousness mindfulness practice meditation practice is very useful then different you know for different people different uh, approaches there's different spiritual practices you know, that one could certainly engage in some uh, like to engage in reflections, others that would offer aspirational prayers, whatever it might be, if such a spiritual activity leads into the development of wholesome mental states, then this certainly could be very useful. And wholesome mental states such as loving kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, sympathetic joy, mudita, and certain equanimity, upika. And those certain qualities then to be developed towards all sentient beings. Not only this, but in general, we want to you know, develop wholesome qualities. So rather than you know, strengthening greed, we want to you know, bring about non-greed. Rather you know, than getting more and more aggressive towards certain nature, we want to develop non-hatred, and so on and so forth. Now, mm, mindfulness practice carried out over a longer period of time, so over several months, several years, on and off, sometimes intensive, sometimes on a daily basis, will gradually lead to the arising of contentment. So an inner contentment, being contented with what one has, be it a lot or you know, just a few things. When one has this inner contentment, one is less dependent on you know, external things, external the indulgence in you know, uh, external sensual pleasures in order to bring about a sense of happiness. Now, mindfulness satna practice overall you know, could be said to be a practice that certain over time helps to reduce fear. By reducing our fear, our courage will grow and our courage you know, to address certain climate change you know, issues and other you know, relevant issues. And some, especially in this certain country, some individuals, especially in this country, have been very you know, courageous, very outspoken, and have addressed uh, you know, these issues in a you know, very bold manner. Now, to come to a conclusion, may our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice, help us to develop wholesome qualities, 
May we, by treating our own practice with care and respect, deepen our understanding of the mind and satna of the body, and may this satna eventually or gradually lead to a change in attitude towards satna the natural world, to a point where we treat the natural world with the greatest care and respect. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.